Hey, good morning, church. Uh, just a reminder, I hope that in, in your Sunday morning routines right now, as things are a little different, you're still connecting with other people uh, in, in the fellowship. And one of the things that I had suggested a few weeks back that I'd like to remind you about and hope that you're continuing in is in the, in the time uh, right before we post the sermon at 10.30 in the morning on Sunday, um, I'd love it if you would connect with the people that normally sit behind you, in front of you, beside you, uh, in church when we're here in the sanctuary and pray with them. Um, that's an important part of our, our church and I'm, I'm providing one part of, uh, of a worship service right now with a sermon. But as you guys know, there's lots of other pieces that we need to keep on to, we need to be sure that we're, we're, uh, fitting together. Um, so if you didn't do that before that, you know, maybe that's okay this Sunday, but after the sermon, um, it's Sunday all day. And, and you've got your directories your, with the uh, phone numbers of the other people in church. So use those and, and uh, call the people that you'd normally see on a Sunday and pray with them. That's an important part of being the church. Um, but I'm going to pray uh, for you also before we get into the Word. We're in John chapter 4. Um, and, and you can uh, get your Bibles wherever they are and, and follow along with me as I, as I read. I'm going to read from John chapter 4 verse 27 through verse 42, and then we'll pray, and then I'll, I'll teach through this passage. We're coming at the, at the heels of the story of the woman at the well. We're kind of halfway through there. So this is woman at the well, part two, and go. Verse 27 of John 4 says, At this point his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah or the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food of, to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone bought him any, brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would lead uh, our community and our world, our neighbors, uh, and ourselves, our church, to this same realization that you, Jesus, are indeed the Savior of the world. We have no other salvation apart from you. Uh, we shouldn't look for salvation apart from you. In, in any place. We, we look to you alone, Jesus, and we pray that you would be exalted in our hearts, uh, in our church, this Sunday, this week, uh, in this season. So we just pray that um, you would bless our understanding of your word. We pray that this passage in John chapter 4 
um, which is your word inspired for the church, would now be applied to the church by the same spirit that wrote it so that we can grow into the, the fullness of the stature of Christ. And we ask that for your glory and in your name. Amen. Amen. Um, so we start out here in this chapter and we see that the disciples marvel. They marvel. I like that word. And I like that we can go to the Bible and rescue some of those good words from their, their comic book connotations. Uh, to marvel is to wonder at, be surprised at. And, and it's cool to see where this word is used in different places in the Gospels because uh, we, we see that different people are surprised by different things. And what you are surprised by, what you marvel at, can reveal a lot about who you are, what kind of person you are. The crowds would often marvel at Jesus' miracles. Uh, he, hear, he heals a, a paralytic in Matthew 8, and it says, When the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God. They were stunned. But after their jaws dropped, they, the next thing they did was they, they praised. They just brought praise to God. They marveled then, and then they worshiped. The disciples at other times had the same response. Jesus calms the storm in Matthew chapter 8, and they, they marveled and said, Who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? I, I think we would have much the same reaction. Um, when Jesus does something miraculous, he defies expectations. He surprises the people around him because they are saying, I didn't know you could do that. And Jesus' enemies marvel as well. In, in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 15, Pontius Pilate marvels when Jesus is silent before him because he expects him to speak and he doesn't. He's surprised that this peasant who really should be pleading for his life is not answering the questions of a Roman authority. Again, expectations are defied. Pilate expected Jesus to, to bend to his will and, and the when the silence of God surprises him and confuses him, he, he marvels. The Pharisees marvel also. They marvel that the disciples don't wash their hands. In Luke 11:38, I've marveled at uh, some people that I've seen for the same reason. Um, you know, someone defies expectations and you, you marvel that they don't wash their hands. And here the, the disciples, though, they're, they're marveling that Jesus talked to a woman. And this should show you the kind of culture that they existed in. Very rigid, very segregated. Um, it was a culture of pride. It was a culture of, of prejudice and not the Jane Austen kind. Uh, for a Jewish man to talk to a woman alone, that's already a problem for this culture. We talked about, about that last week a little bit. The, the fact that she was a Samaritan woman just made things worse. And so the disciples, they're astonished. They marvel. And it's the same word to describe their, their response to healings and, and miracles, the, the power over the weather and things like that. They're shocked that Jesus is talking to a woman. Maybe not to the same degree, hopefully not to the same degree, but at least in the same sort of way as, they, um, as when Jesus walked on water. They're marveled in the same way. Now, there's two ways we can take this. The simple, obvious one is that this was a backwards kind of prejudice. Obviously, the fact that Jesus does talk to this woman and does speak to her alone without a chaperone uh, shows us that there was nothing morally wrong with the situation, the way the disciples would have maybe assumed there to be. Jesus is perfect. Jesus doesn't sin. Jesus, in crossing you know, cultural boundaries, was not crossing any moral lines. So the disciples shock 
And that, that shows us that the disciples had a long way to go in their understanding of the righteousness of God. And we can look at this and, and, and be critical of the culture, maybe, that they were in. And, and maybe we can be critical of the disciples' ignorance and everyone, everything else wrong with the scenario. Um, but there's definitely something else for us to see here. There's, there's more than that. It's not always wrong to marvel. It's not wrong to be surprised at the goodness and the grace of God and how far he reaches. The work of the Lord, the works of the Lord, are marvelous. The scripture tells us that. And perhaps, perhaps, we should see the, the simple human connection between Jesus and this woman as truly marvelous. Just like we can consider the, the miraculous as something that's marvelous. I, I don't doubt that the disciples marveled for the wrong reasons. I think that's, that's evident. But now, looking back through 2,000 years of history and each one of your testimonies, from our you know, advanced and modern perspective, isn't it still marvelous that Jesus came to speak to this woman at the well? It is. Isn't it still worth marveling over, being astonished at, being shocked that Jesus has come to speak to you? It is. We ought not lose our wonder. And not that Jesus would speak to this Samaritan woman, but that Jesus would speak to any of us. That's a shocking thing. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't take that for granted and let that become a dull thing. God has pursued you, and he speaks to you. And everyone realizing that God has spoken to them, you know, that that should cause a, a hush to fall over the room. And you should say, wow, wow, Jesus sought me out and speaks to me. That's worth marveling about. So in a way, correcting what we imagine the disciples being surprised about is, is maybe a wrong way to go. We shouldn't be less astonished. We should be more astonished. We should marvel more. They should be surprised, not only that Jesus would speak to this woman at this well, but that, that Jesus should speak to Peter and John or James or Andrew, and you know, they should be astonished that God himself took on flesh and bone and came into possession of a human tongue and learned human language as a child and grew into a human man so that he could enter into our experience and speak to any one of us. It's worth marveling about. And we're going to see the, uh, just really a huge awakening take place in Samaria. It's a cool story. Jesus spends two days here in Samaria uh, where lives are saved and walls are torn down. And it's pretty amazing. However, we know that Jesus didn't do a single miracle in Samaria. At the end of chapter 4, uh, which we'll get into next week, we'll see that John specifically mentions Jesus' second miracle to be the healing of the nobleman's son in Galilee. He turned water into wine. He hasn't done a miracle since. And then he's going to do another one back in Galilee. The disciples marvel, but they don't say anything. And that's a good move. Sometimes the best thing to do is to say nothing. They would have been wrong to question Jesus at this time. And maybe in addition to respect, they're actually thinking of what is happening in front of them as Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. Uh, why are we surprised? You know, what, what's wrong with this situation that, that rubs us the wrong way? What's really going on? Maybe they're examining their hearts. We can only hope. But in, in this whole exchange in Samaria where Jesus does no actual miracles, he doesn't walk on water, he doesn't calm the storm, his ministry is no less spiritual, it's no less miraculous, and it's no less worthy of being marveled at because Jesus, the Son of God, is pursuing lost sheep. 
Now keep reading. It says, The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, this is verse 28, and now we're in verse 29, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. Um, she leaves the water pot. That's sort of a detail that indicates an eyewitness account. And John is there. He's, he's the one writing the book. He was there. He saw it. She leaves her water pot. But the water pot, I think, is more than a prop in the story. It's why she was at the well in the first place. I mean, she didn't go there to, to meet a Jewish rabbi. That's not why she was going to the well. Before she met Jesus, this water pot represented her purpose for being where she was. And, and it seems that Jesus is always willing to change your purpose. You know, you thought you were going to the grocery store to buy food, but Jesus wanted you there to offer a word of encouragement to someone you met there. You thought you were running errands for your own sake, but Jesus had an appointment for you. We call them divine appointments. Maybe all appointments are. And you know, maybe Jesus called you there to do what you thought was your idea, to meet with you. Don't you love it when he meets with you in the unexpected? You know, I would encourage you to have the attitude of looking over your shoulder for God, or, or rather develop an awareness that he is looking over your shoulder at what you are doing, and he is interested in giving your work more purpose than you had in mind. The woman comes to the well to get water. When she leaves, she doesn't even care about the water anymore. Jesus has so elevated her purpose. He has called her to something so much greater. She leaves the water pot behind. It's kind of like James and John leaving the nets behind. They had a purpose. They had a job. And when Jesus calls them, they get something new. They get something better. So she goes from the well. She rushes back into town. She leaves the water pot at the well. And, and she tells the men in verse 29, Come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? In verse 30 it says, Then they went out of the city and came to him. Now, last week we talked about the cultural boundaries, and, and this morning we've talked about it already. The cultural boundaries that were crossed when Jesus, a man, spoke to this woman alone. Uh, all sorts of rules were broken by that exchange. Now, we see this woman go and speak to the men of the city. This wasn't quite as revolutionary. Uh, after all, she was reporting something completely remarkable. It was speaking... Uh, to multiple people, it seems, not just one man alone, which would have, you know, maybe been risque. Um, this could have been at the city gates. And the men there could have been the city elders. If so, then this wasn't impolite in any way or unheard of. Um, she would have been probably respected when she came in uh, with an emergency and said, you guys have to see this. Um, however, we can't help but, but see that this event, like the events following the resurrection, were first reported by women. God likes it this way. Uh, it's, a, it's a bit of counterculture, uh, maybe, that this woman who had most likely been kept at the fringes of society is now sent into the heart of society, maybe even government, in order to bring the transformative message of Jesus into that society. And it works. It says that they believed her. They, they followed her to Jesus. The Samaritan woman is a model for each one of us. She tells people about Jesus, the one who told me all the things I ever did. Now, we have the privilege and the obligation to tell people about Jesus. The one who knows the depths of our hearts and loves us the same, as the song goes. When Jesus transforms a person, he transforms them into evangelists. Now, now, you might not think of yourself as an evangelist, but you are one. Because your words and your life are meant to draw people 
to Jesus. You have been called to a greater purpose than drawing water. You've been given living water that bubbles up from within you. You might be a bad evangelist. I think I am most of the time. But that doesn't change the calling or the purpose of sharing Jesus with the world. You have a mission. You have been sent. And with the same message that this Samaritan woman brings, the same message, come see Jesus. That's what we're granted. That's what we're given. That's, those are the words that the Spirit puts into our mouths to, to, to share with the world. Come see Jesus. Now, while that's all happening in the village, Jesus is still at the well with the disciples. Now, remember, the disciples came in on the tail end of the conversation that Jesus was having with the woman in the well. They saw Jesus talking to a girl, and they got real confused, and they, they hadn't been there for the whole conversation because they had gone into town to buy food. And that's what it said back in verse 8. So now, we come to verse 31. It says, in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, he, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This is cool. So the disciples are, are back with lunch. Uh, everyone's sharing, passing around the pita bread and the fish or whatever. And, and they're, they're munching on that. And Jesus is just standing there, maybe leaning against the well, you know, not showing any interest, any real interest in the food. And the disciples tell him, hey, come have some lunch. We brought you some food. Eat with us. These are true friends, these disciples. And, and the disciples offer, it's, it's fine. They're behaving normally. In fact, uh, I think this is one of the few places where you see the disciples show, you know, true friendship to Jesus. They remind him to eat. That's a good thing. I hope you have friends like this. Um... Charles Spurgeon, you know, noticed this and, and, of course, waxed poetic on the whole thing. He says, It is right for the spiritual man to forget his hunger, but it is equally right for his true friends to remind him that he ought to eat for his health's sake. It is commendable for the worker to forget his weakness and press forward in holy service, but it is proper for the humane and thoughtful to in interpose with a word of caution and to remind the ardent spirit that his frame is but dust. Now, I like that. Um, it's good to fast. Um, I'm going to talk about that, um, you know, more. But it's also good to have friends to remind you to have a snack. Um, now, obviously, that's not the big picture truth in this passage, but it's still there. The bigger truth is that Jesus is seeking sustenance that is spiritual rather than physical. And that's a new thing for the disciples, and it may be new for some of you. Jesus is intentionally denying physical food in order to feed on something else. Jesus is fasting. And, and there's two things we learn about fasting here. That fasting is denying food for the purpose of spiritual power. And we'll cross-reference we'll cross for that. And, there's a, and then secondly, there's a sustaining element in fasting that is present even when your flesh is hungering. So again, to say the same things a different way, fasting brings power, but also and the, the paradox is that fasting feeds us. Jesus says, I have food. I am eating. You just don't see it. But first, let's just consider this idea that fasting is beneficial here. Matthew 17, 21. Jesus has cast out a demon that the disciples were not able to cast out. Uh, even after he had given them uh, authority to cast out demons. And the disciples wondered why they were not able to cast it out. They were surprised that this demon did not cower before them. And Jesus says that they were missing one of their weapons, essentially. He says you can't have victory over that kind of evil without prayer and fasting. 
And it sounds really strange to a lot of Christians who come to this for the first time. We don't like the idea that we can't have all the spiritual maturity right now. You know, out of, out of the microwave in 30 seconds. But Jesus says this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And when I teach on that passage, I point out that the disciples could not have encountered the demon and then decided to fast from that moment on. It was an emergency. They needed the power at that moment. But Jesus says you can't defeat this kind of enemy without fasting. So, when should they have fasted? Well, evidently, before this. And for you, church, you, you may or may not be facing the biggest challenge of your life right now. I don't know. But I'll tell you right now, the time to fast is now in preparation for what you don't know. And the scripture is very clear about that fasting, denying yourself food for the purpose of prayer and spiritual pursuits, is both necessary and effective for growth in the Christian life. Uh, I, would, I would venture to say that every hero of the faith has been a champion in this discipline. Jesus fasted, Paul fasted, David fasted, Elijah fasted, Moses fasted. They went without food for a time in order to focus their souls on God. They denied the flesh in order to make it weaker in the face of a strong spirit. Now a note on this, before we go on to the second part of fasting. Biblical fasting is not a social media fast. Uh, biblical fasting is not a Daniel fast where you just eat vegetables. Fasting is when you do not eat. Full stop. Uh, in scripture, fasting never means anything except not eating food. And you might need to cut out other bad habits, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with diets. Uh, the Lord might lead you to lessen your time in front of screens uh, or things like that. He's done that with me before, but I don't call that fasting. Uh, it's not accurate to call that fasting. It's definitely not what Jesus was talking about. Now, in our story in John chapter 4, Jesus has been walking all morning. He's weary. He's thirsty. He comes to the well. He talks to the woman there about living water. He tells her he is the Messiah. And then the disciples come with his lunch. The woman runs back home to tell all her neighbors about Jesus, and Jesus refuses to eat. Why doesn't Jesus eat? The disciples want to know. Some of you want to know. And as usual, Jesus gives an answer that isn't really direct. He says, I have food to eat. I have food to eat of, of which you do not know. And they wonder, did that lady give him a snack? Jesus already ate? Well, then why did we get this much food if he was just going to eat here? But no, he explains that his food is to do the will of God. That gives him sustenance. Now, fasting, it gives you your spiritual strength. And while your stomach is far from satisfied, there's a deeper satisfaction that you lean into, that you gain access to through this kind of self-denial. Jesus says, I am eating, but I'm not feeding my stomach right now. I'm feeding my spirit. Now, this battle between flesh and spirit is ancient, and it's evident to anyone who has ever lived in a body. Uh, even in very natural terms, you see this. Have you ever taken a class in college after lunch? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, with, when your mind and your spirit want, what your mind and your spirit want might not be the same as what your stomach wants, what your hormones want. Uh, to deny the flesh of its food is a choice where you are telling your body who is in charge. Paul says that I discipline my body to bring it into subjection because he knows if he doesn't, then the flesh gets out of control and calls all the shots. And that's a kind of discipline that we're called to. Now, Jesus knows that the woman is going to be back. He knows that she is going to bring friends. 
He knows that he's about to teach. He knows that this is both physical and spiritual exertion. Knowing that this is going to be, you know, an after-lunch class, he doesn't eat. On a purely practical level, if you're going to teach in any way, don't eat a bunch beforehand. It's just good advice. If you're teaching spiritual truth, this becomes important for another reason. You're in spiritual warfare, and some things don't get accomplished without prayer and fasting. And I believe that Jesus is preparing for the spiritual work of the afternoon, or perhaps the whole weekend. But Jesus doesn't call it a sacrifice. He doesn't say, woe is me, for this heavy ministry is upon me, and I shall deny myself of all earthly pleasures. He doesn't say anything like that. He says, I'm feasting right now. I am feasting right now, and you guys can't even see the feast. He says, I have food, you just don't see it. It's like the movie Hook. And here's the beautiful mystery that Jesus says in many different ways. The one who loses his life gains it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Fasting and self-denial is a way of spiritual feasting. And God, uh, and God acceptance is what we gain when we have self-denial. We deny ourselves and we accept the Lord. Jesus is in the zone. He's not thinking about himself. He's not thinking about his flesh, his needs. He is now laser focused on the work of his father. He's focused on the ministry to Samaria and he is feasting on the work of God because this is why he showed up in the first place. And I hope that we can develop this kind of perspective. You know, so much of our imagination is wrong when we think that obedience to God is always an equivalent of moving to the Sudan. Right? If that is actually what you're called to, then the Sudan will be the best feast you could ask for. During the, doing the will of God is what sustains your soul as a child of God. Obedience is fulfilling. To do the work of God is food for your soul. Not always for your body. Not always for your emotions. Not always for your heart, which is deceitfully wicked above all things, but for your spirit, for your soul. We are fed by obedience. And I think we need to realize this so that our appetites can increase in the right directions. Because the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness will be blessed and will be filled. The one who hungers and thirsts. God, make us hungry. Make us thirsty. And Jesus, while skipping lunch, is feasting on obedience and preparing for spiritual breakthrough. I would encourage you to incorporate biblical fasting into your schedule. If you have questions, let's talk about how you can do that. I would love to have more conversations with each one of you about fasting. I think it's really something lacking in our Christian culture, uh, but it's something so beneficial. Jesus fasted, and, and as he was doing this fasting, he was, he was nourishing his soul. He was still eating a spiritual meal. But when you eat this kind of meal... Uh, when, when you pursue the will of the Lord for your food, let me show you what that's going to look like. Uh, let, me, let me show you what dessert looks like. If you're going to look, uh, if you're going to have this new perspective on the world around you, it's, it's going to be different. You're going to become God-focused and other-focused and mission-focused like you've never been before. Read verse 35. Jesus says, Do you not say there are still four months and then come the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already, they are already white for harvest. Okay, uh, uh, a crop that's white for harvest, that, that's a grain, okay? This doesn't apply to apple trees or something. Um, but grain begins green, like the grass that it is, and then it ripens to yellow and gets paler and paler. Uh, the grain and the, the chaff around the grain becomes white. You're close to it. Now, when you look out in the field and there's no more green, and there's just white, 
It's time to harvest right now. But there was a saying back in Jesus' day, sort of a proverb. If you read this in Greek, it's got kind of a sing-songy, rhymy tone to it. It was, And this, this is sort of a tongue-in-cheek way of saying, well, why do today what you can put off until tomorrow? There are still four months till the harvest. That was a saying. And it was a way of saying, I've got plenty of time to get to work later. Now, it, it wasn't something anyone could say seriously. Because four months before harvest is still before you even put the seed in the ground. Barley, a common grain back then, barley is ready to go uh, a little more than two months after planting. Wheat takes longer at around three months. So the person who would actually say, I don't have to go to work because it's still four months to harvest, is someone that doesn't know how plants work. You, you have to put the seed in the ground if you're going to have a harvest. And you have to prepare the soil and you have to mend fences and do all the work to get ready. Now Jesus is fasting while this woman is telling her friends about the man who is the Christ. Jesus is feasting on obedience. He's focused on his father's work. Not the work of that moment, but the work that was coming. And when he says, I have food, which is to do the will of my father, it's probably reasonable to imagine the disciples sort of nodding their heads and grunting and then returning to their sandwiches and being like, okay, but it's lunchtime. You know, why do I need to focus on spiritual things now? That's not even, there's not even anyone around. And did I mention it's lunchtime? <laughs> and Jesus is saying, there's an attitude that says I can put it off and it's wrong. There's a way of thinking that says the time for work is tomorrow. That's wrong. You don't get to look forward to a harvest four months out unless you're getting up and working the farm today. And here's the problem with procrastinating. You look back and the time is gone. And what Jesus is saying when he says, if you think you've got time, you're already out of time. And he says that by saying, look up. The field is white for harvest. Today is the day of salvation. You missed it. You missed planting. You missed tending. It's harvest now. Let's go. Harvest Harvest would have been the best day to go to work. right? It's when the party happened. We saw this in the book of Ruth. right? Harvest was a great time. It's when you get your whole paycheck for the season. Uh, but harvest is definitely not a great time for people that didn't plant anything. And Jesus is telling his disciples who are enjoying their lunch, I don't want you to think about ministry and spiritual things as tomorrow's problem. I want you to go to work every day like it's payday, like the fruit is already ripe. Expect it. And this is exactly what we've seen with Jesus' attitude towards fasting. Remember the demon-possessed boy? And Jesus says, this, cannot, this kind cannot come out by prayer and fasting, which means that Jesus had to be fasting beforehand. He didn't put it off. He didn't procrastinate. He didn't wait until harvest day to plant. But when it was time to harvest... He was ready. The metaphor of the harvest, of course, is something Jesus brings up more than once. In Luke chapter 10, verse 2, he says, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. In other parables, Jesus shows that the harvest is a harvest of souls. And Jesus says that they're ripe for the picking. Now, this is purely speculative here, as I don't know the geography of the area around Jacob's well, and I wasn't there when Jesus was having this conversation. But I kind of like to imagine Jesus looking off into the distance towards the village and, and seeing the people gather into crowds and come out of their houses, and the Samaritans are starting to come to see the man that the woman had told them about. And Jesus says, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look at the fields. 
for they are already white for harvest. Look up. Look up and see the ministry that the Lord has called you to. Do, do you see those Samaritans coming this way? Do you see the hungry souls? The harvest is ripe. It's right now. Now the harvest, harvest time would be both celebratory, it's a, it's a feast, it's payday, and also urgent. It's a celebration to be sure, and I believe that this is an attitude that we should have when it comes to serving the Lord. Doing His work is fun. Seeing God move in hearts is really cool. Being deep in prayer is joyful, and seeing the results of prayer is joyful too. Harvest is a celebration, but it's also urgent. You know, if you leave the grain in the field or the fruit on the tree, it rots. There's an attitude of waiting that is foolishness because to wait is to waste. When you realize that the harvest is ripe, you realize that the time is now. And this is what Jesus is training his men in. This is what he's training us in. The disciples were not expecting to spend two days in Samaria doing ministry for their cultural and political enemies. But Jesus is showing them the harvest is ripe. Right here, right now. Look and see. Now keep reading here. Verse 37 it says, And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Jesus encourages the disciples here in three ways. He says there's going to be a reward for their work. He says that the rewards are going to last forever. And he says that they're going to be rejoicing together with all the other workers when, it, when all this is over. You know, Paul picks up this theme in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, 6. He, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. And then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So Jesus says, hey, you guys, when you were buying lunch, I was planting seeds. And now look, the harvest is ready. And he lets them in on ministry victories that they didn't earn. They didn't plan for. They didn't plant for. And just like there's a lesson of, of being ready and redeeming the time, living like the harvest is today and not procrastinating in the things of the Lord, there's also the beautiful message of grace here that God has invited you to get involved in the work that he's already started. He started your ministry before you were born. And the work that the disciples are doing is, is going to be both planting and harvesting. Now, a lot of grain is grown in rotation, so you would have staggered harvests. And with Samaria, that's the way it would be. And Jesus would stay there for two days, and, and there would be a harvest. And the end result, we, we read in John right there, it says, they, they said to the woman, now we believe. Not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we, we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. That's a harvest. But we read in the book of Acts, after the resurrection, after the birth of the church, that Philip goes to Samaria and has another harvest. He has a revival. And there, he's probably harvesting the crops that the disciples had planted here in John 4. Now we started talking in this passage about marveling, right? And the disciples, they were surprised that Jesus was behaving strangely. Well, in, in scripture, Jesus marvels sometimes too. He marvels at great faith unlooked for. And he marvels at a lack of faith that should have been found. And here's something for you to think on. As you meditate on this passage, this chapter in the life of Jesus and his followers, Jesus has called you to work. He has invited you to be about his father's business. He has called you to faith. And, and some of you, 
are used to saying. You've, you become accustomed to saying that the harvest is still a few months out. And Jesus would correct you. He would marvel at the lack of faith. Today is the day of salvation. Look up. It's harvest time. And the grain won't keep forever. And one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture that you've heard me work into a whole lot of sermons and Bible studies is Ephesians 2.10. And it seems like a fitting place to end. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And guys, that's today. And the work in his harvest is today, and there's work for you to do. Be encouraged, because for everything you're going to harvest, Jesus has already been there when the seeds were planted. For every seed planted, Jesus has been tilling the soil. He's already at work, and he's inviting, inviting you to join with him in that. You know, let's be a church that honors the urgency of harvest and engages in the celebration of harvest. Let's both pray for the Lord to send laborers and also pray with Isaiah that he would send us. Let's look forward to the day when we rejoice with the, the planters and the waterers, and especially when we see the face of the one who gives the increase. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we rejoice in the good work of the Lord of the harvest. That's you. Uh, we thank you that you have tended us, Lord, that you have grafted us in even to continue the agricultural metaphors. God, we, we pray that we, would be able to, um, that we would be able to seek the good of your people, of your church, and of our neighbors, and see that it's harvest time now. Um, that we are in a time of ministry, that we're in a time that's worth working in. Lord, I pray that you would grow our church in this area. And again, we, we thank you for caring for us, for ministering to us, for being patient with us, for teaching us. And I ask your blessing on our church, on each soul, and on each one listening to the sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.